0: Trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story, all make up the fabric that is George Mason University, where taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, Patriots. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington welcoming you to another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges that face our students, our graduates, and higher education. The coronavirus pandemic presented tremendous challenges to our faculty, staff, and students. Some were obvious, such as how to continue one's education through distance learning and how to maintain friendships through Zoom calls. But some were not as clear cut, such as dealing with the anxiety, depression, and trauma the pandemic has caused. My guest today is at the forefront of that fight. Robin Mellenbeck is a clinical professor in Mason's College of Humanities and Social Sciences and is the director of Mason's Center for Psychological Services, a clinical psychology training clinic which serves the entire Northern Virginia community. The center, free of charge, has provided psychological services to healthcare providers, essential workers and their families in Virginia, Maryland, and the District of Columbia. The care is administered by trained volunteers, including Mason students. The center also provides emotional support seven days a week through the phone line and also delivers free skills therapy services for essential workers who need it and can also offer free virtual therapy sessions. It's another example of how George Mason University is invested in the DMV community and is committed to well-being in every form. Dr. Mellenbeck is a board-certified clinical psychologist and a fellow of the American Psychological Association who specializes in working with adolescents and kids with medical conditions. She is the immediate past president of the Society for Development and Behavioral Pediatrics and the recipient of the 2021 Jack Wood Award for Town Gown Relations at Mason in recognition for her community service. Prior to coming to George Mason, Dr. Mellenbach was a clinical associate professor at Brown University Medical School and worked at the Hasbro Children's Partial Hospital Program as director of training. Dr. Mellenbach, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, President Washington.
0: Well, look, there are a whole host of things I would love to talk to you about. Let's jump right into it. So what prompted the creation of the program to offer free psychological services to health care providers and essential workers?
1: So like everybody else, we recognized very early on that the essential workers who did not have the luxury of staying in their homes and taking precautions when the COVID pandemic started, that they were going to need support. And so we brainstormed with Chair Keith Renshaw of Psychology as well as some of our doctoral students and thought about how could we reach out to the community and provide that support. And we came up with the essential worker emotional support phone line mm-hmm. and set that up. And with that, any essential worker, so again, whether it was healthcare, frontline teachers, hotel workers, janitorial workers, anybody who might otherwise have a hard time accessing care and support would have the ability to access at least some support on their timeline. That was the other important thing. And that's why the phone line is. to 8.30, seven days a week.
0: Outstanding, outstanding. So help me understand all the services that are available.
1: Yeah, so the center, everyone mixes us up with CAPS, which is the counseling center for the university students. We're actually the main training clinic for doctoral students in clinical psychology, but we also train counseling psychology students, social work students, and undergrads, and we serve the community. So we provide evidence-based therapy services and testing services on a sliding scale. So I like to think of our center as kind of a win-win where we are training the next generation of behavioral health providers, but also providing critical services that are accessible and affordable to the community.
0: No, this is really cool because this is the essence of experiential learning, right? Absolutely. You learn by doing and you do by learning, right? And so this is really, really cool. How's the response been?
1: So, again, we, as you mentioned, we have several different services. Mm-hmm. So the support line has had good response. It's definitely faded off a little bit in the last month or that so. That makes sense. And because of what we consider the looming mental health crisis that is going to hit and is already hitting across everybody, we're actually working and talking about opening up that emotional support line to anybody who may need support, not just the essential workers. So that's probably where that's going in the future. But we do find that most of the people who call don't need the additional services. About half of those people who get three free skills-based therapy sessions don't need longer-term therapy. So our goal is to help people where they're at. And hopefully most people won't need long-term services. They really just need some immediate support.
0: They need to get over the hump, right? Exactly. So are you finding that if you catch it early enough, if you deal with people at the onset of the issues that they are experiencing related to COVID that you can actually help them through this and thereby you are a buffer towards keeping people from having to experience long-term care or from getting into a situation where, for lack of a better way of putting this, they injure themselves or injure others or do things Mm -hmm. that are just harmful.
1: Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. If we can get people to accept some help early, they can fend off potentially longer term consequences. The good news, I think, that people don't realize is we have really good research on what types of treatments help people who deal with suppression, anxiety, and even trauma, including racial trauma. Again, we're seeing effects not only of the COVID pandemic, but of all of the racial injustice, the discrimination, I mean, there has been a lot going on in this past year leading to this point where mental health is really not good.
0: (laughs) It's the second pandemic. And the reality of the situation is it's the one that nobody's talking about. Right. Well, people are starting to talk about it more and more now, but not as much as you would think. It seems obvious now. Right. But COVID sucked so much air out of the room. Yeah,
1: I like how you described it that way, yes. You
0: couldn't really think or focus on anything else, right? We were only focused on COVID. It was COVID, COVID, COVID. And these other issues Mm -hmm. have been creeping up. And now we're seeing clear evidence that something mentally different is happening in our society from a mental health perspective, uh, perspective, right? Absolutely. You're seeing violent crime Skyrocket. You're seeing murders and rapes and domestic violence issues skyrocket. People are having more problems in the classroom. I mean, just the other day, I took a a cross country flight, the first major one since COVID. So we fly to California, and um, even there on the airlines, they are now changing their policies. Because flight attendants are getting attacked by customers. Uh, it's kind of all of this trauma making its way outward into the public because people are now more flexible and free to get out in the public. But they're bringing those mental issues that have been festering while they've been inside with them.
1: I think a good way to describe that is everyone's on edge.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly right.
1: There's a lot of anxiety that has risen to the surface and people respond to the anxiety in very different ways. And some people lash out, some people internalize and actually continue to isolate right? <laughs> and not speak up when they need things. But absolutely, I think a lot of some of these things that are coming to the forefront, like you're saying with the flight attendants potentially being attacked at times, it boils down to the uncertainty and the anxiety, that then bubbles over Mm -hmm. inappropriately. It's not a healthy way to manage that.
0: Without question. Let's move this over to our students a little bit. Mm -hmm. So according to a recent survey, over 90% of college students have experienced negative mental health symptoms due to COVID-19. These include, but are not limited to, isolation, anxiety, and lack of focus. So what are your thoughts on this issue and what should we be doing now as an institution to prepare for large numbers of students returning to our campuses, large number of people, not just students, by the way faculty, staff, contractors, Mm -hmm. large numbers of people returning to our campuses in the the fall?
1: That's an absolutely great question. I actually was just in a meeting yesterday talking about some of those statistics from that survey and talking with other leaders at Mason about what we can do for the entire university environment. Mm -hmm. Again, the undergrads, the grad students, our contractors, faculty, staff, everybody. And a couple of things that I can't take all this credit for this, but that thinking about how can we preventively help people have some of these skills to manage those feelings of uncertainty and anxiety. So part of it is going to be how can we reach large groups of people without the stigma of engaging in therapy? And I put that in air quotes, I realized On the radio, you can't see my air quotes.
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's exactly right.
1: But so there's a piece of how do we reach large groups of people who have different needs and different anxieties? And then how do we identify those that really could benefit from more intensive interventions, whether that is having a 24-7 phone support, whether that is having three intense skills-based sessions, or whether that's longer-term therapy, and how do we help narrow down who needs those services versus who really could benefit from f- more preventative skills-based interventions?
0: And I'm smiling here because, you know, as you speak, you're, you're giving me ideas and I'm putting on <laughs> my president's hat, and I'm thinking about this like an administrator who knows that they're going to have to deal with this issue mm-hmm. in very short order, right? Right. Right. And so I'll ask a couple of questions that just have come to mind. I know you may not be prepared for them, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Should we be surveying our students day one? Should we be surveying our staff and our faculty day one? so soon as they come back, trying to get a handle on, to the extent that people will confide and tell us, what the magnitude of the issue is? Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. As long as we put in place services to follow up. So again, I've heard this many times at the high school level and in pediatricians' offices, they don't want to screen for depression because they're afraid if the kids say yes, they don't know where to get them help. So if we were to implement something like that on the university level, we need to also have that plan of, okay, if we have somebody who's admitting to being in crisis, What is our plan to address that? How are we going to help them immediately? If we have somebody who's identifying as having some kind of middle level anxiety Mm -hmm. or depression, what is our plan and do we have the resources to make sure that those needs get met? Because as soon as you ask about it, you want to make sure, you know, and then somebody is vulnerable enough to admit Yes, I'm struggling. Right, We right. need to be able to follow up with them.
0: Okay, well, okay, this is good. Let's get into it here. <laughs> so in some sense, the perfect can be the enemy of the good, right? We're going to have to figure out how to engage, even when we may not necessarily have all of the resources in play to actually service individuals. Here's why, for two reasons. N- number one, if they're students and they're under our care, we're going to have to deal with this at some point point in time anyway right that's number one number two we're gonna at some point in time have to assess scale we're gonna have to assess how big the challenge actually is and my philosophy is there's no way to know that unless you ask Mm -hmm. one of the biggest struggles that i've had is believe it or not is an outcome of the fact that we've managed COVID here very well and because we've managed it well people don't have the realization that we're in a crisis They don't have the realization that we're dealing with a major life-changing, life-altering event for our whole country. And because they don't have that, they go back to thinking that they had pre-pandemic in terms of how you deal with issues. Well, we're actually still in crisis, right? Absolutely. And, and just because we get a number of people tested, just because we get a number of people vaccinated and that part of the crisis has subsided, the aftermath of that mm-hmm. has not. Absolutely.
1: Right? If I can step back for a second okay. just to okay. when I'm talking about those resources, right now at our Center for the Community... We have wait lists I've never seen. I'll be here 11 years in a couple of weeks, and the wait lists are ridiculous. We don't have enough therapists to treat people who are seeking the help, and we're not alone. That's across the entire community because we're connected with all the community services and some of those directors are calling us to say hey can you get somebody in and we're calling other people saying hey we really need somebody seen. So I think we do have a major issue of access for those folks who actually need the higher levels of treatment and that includes just therapy. Having said that I think Mason is really uniquely positioned because we have a history of thinking very creatively, (laughs) innovatively and Mason has a history of backing really interesting new ideas that I think will come from this crisis. The crisis brings new ideas and challenges that That's right. we address. That's right. And it's very exciting to hear that we're already thinking about how are we going to help the students? How are we going to help faculty and staff? We're so diverse and there are many folks from various cultures where the idea of therapy is just unacceptable. So student health is involved because it is okay to have a headache and a stomachache. It's not okay to have trauma or anxiety. And so again, thinking about how do we reach all of the people that we need to reach. And it's very exciting that we're having those
0: discussions already. We do have a group of individuals that have formed, for lack of a better way of saying this, more of a cat team to begin Mm -hmm. to put the foundational infrastructure in place to prepare for uh, the mental health challenges that we think that we will see starting in the fall as we start to repopulate the campus. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, it's again a very phenomenal group under the leadership of Rose Pascarel and Mark Ginsberg, our right. provost, mm-hmm. really picking up leaders from university life, from student health, from employee resources. I was very honored to be asked to be part of this given that our center is very focused on the community even though we work quite A bit with Mason students as well.
0: No, you were picked because you know how to deal with large, massive groups of people, and we know (laughs) that we're going to need you.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. So again, we've just had the initial meeting, but there is urgency, and we are talking about the different levels and the different groups of people we need to be able to reach quickly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as people are coming back to campus. I mean, the reality is we're going to have people who come back who, for one reason or another, are not vaccinated, and that's going to cause anxiety, both from the people who are coming back who are not vaccinated, as well as people who are vaccinated, who might have children at home who are not not eligible for vaccinations yet, and that's just one teeny little piece, but the social anxiety also is a big one that I think we're going to see across all groups. Losing a year and a half of face-to-face social interactions really causes people to become more rusty on their social skills and for people who may have been a little nervous to start with it's like oh my gosh i actually have to speak up in class or I have to listen to students and remember how to negotiate normally with somebody rather than via Zoom (laughs) or even wearing a mask where you don't have to deal with anyone's facial expressions.
0: I haven't thought about it that way. That is really enlightening. We are addressing the issues of need Mm -hmm. around people who will experience trauma or they're going to have mental health issues, right? But there is another cohort of people And that's the group of people who actually have to deal with all of those people, right? They may not be experiencing any mental trauma. they are people who, quite frankly, came through this challenge, came through COVID-19 and experienced very little trauma. Some people actually thrived. Mm -hmm. Their investments soared. They were more comfortable in a virtual environment than in a face-to-face one. So they literally thrived in this environment. Those individuals are going to have to deal with individuals in the workplace, individuals in school, individuals in their social networking groups who actually do have trauma. They actually need skills. They need coping skills so that they actually don't make matters worse. And I don't know that we're addressing that because you're not addressing the people with the challenge. You're addressing the people who will in some manner have to address people, Mm -hmm. not necessarily from a professional perspective, but they will actually have to address people with these challenges.
1: I think that's an absolutely fantastic point. And I think this is the idea behind some of the preventive work and that if we can reach lots of folks. There are so many people who will have so many different stories and so many different experiences that they will bring back to campus or bring back to their workplaces or bring back to school. And none of us really know what other people have experienced. So you're right, with the trauma, we don't know who has lost family members or who were affected so financially that they went for the first time ever to food banks to be able to get through versus some of those, let's say, folks who were able to actually very comfortably shelter at home and not worry about food and not worry about where their next paycheck was
0: going to come from. Right. And they had their whole family with them during and, that time. Exactly. And their whole family stayed safe. And, and I've heard these stories. They had the whole family with them. The whole family stayed safe. And guess what? We actually had dinner together every day because exactly. nobody had to work. We actually had real conversations. We watched shows together. We bonded. We grew. Exactly. Those individuals are going to actually have to deal with people who experience real trauma.
1: If we can help people with some resilient skills, including empathy, compassion. And if I had to give one little tidbit to all of those folks, it's just a reminder that you never know somebody else's story. Mm, so that, that so if, true. if you did come through in one of those wonderful ways, a resilient way, closer to your family, I mean, I'll admit I had time with my teenage kids and my young college student that we never would have had. Having said that, we also spent a year helping the graduate students who were experiencing some of their own issues and their own family help other people continue to do therapy throughout right.
0: this whole year. Right. But the difference between you mm-hmm. and even individuals like myself is that you're trained. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. You're trained and they're not. And so That's maybe they point. maybe they need a toolbox, a toolkit, mm-hmm. some basic steps. This is not for the individuals who, like I said, right. may be experiencing trauma. It's just for people who have to deal with people yeah. who are experiencing trauma. They may need a simple how-to. You you mentioned earlier that maybe some of our interaction and social skills may have atrophied some, Mm -hmm. right? Because we just haven't had engagement. We just haven't had communication. We just haven't been able to do this on a regular basis for over a year, in some cases, I think those individuals are gonna need something. They're gonna need, here are the four or five things to say when you encounter someone who's experiencing trauma, right?
1: It's a great idea. I actually think we have some of that here at Mason already. Okay. Our Center for the Advancement of Wellbeing has been working, and several years ago, I was working with them as well, but Dr. Lucas's whole group
0: is it, is it focused on COVID-related stuff? It's not stuff?
1: focused on COVID, right. but some of the skills are identical. Good. So our three sessions of therapy that I talk about are skills-focused on COVID. Combined with some of the stuff that already we have through the CWB, mm-hmm. I think we would have that already in hand. Well, this is really good. Yes, those three sessions are evidence-based, mm-hmm. they're skills-based, and they're helpful for anybody.
0: Well, this is good. I'm gonna tell you now, I will when, when when we get off this call and everything's done here, I am gonna go have a discussion with Mark and say, you know, you may wanna add this to the repertoire of things that you, you wanna put in place, because I do think it's, it's actually gonna be helpful.
1: Yeah, and that's a great idea. And maybe that's something, too, you know, you have said at the very beginning, how do we reach everybody? And maybe the first day of classes, at the beginning of every class, kinda like we did the Mason COVID check, the health check, Mm -hmm. maybe everybody does a post-COVID mental health check. That was one idea that came up yesterday. Mm, But also with that, it then prompts people to go to some of these skills sites so that it's not just a question, but we have it set up so that they can go and already be directed to a site that has a couple of those exactly maybe four or five key things to say if you don't know what to say
0: all right look <laughs> we're making some progress here this is outstanding so <laughs> i have so far off script anyway l- 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 let me pull it back a little bit.
1: okay um, no problem
0: <laughs> Do you find that different populations are experiencing effects differently, such as a stay-at-home parent compared to a frontline worker?
1: Absolutely. There's just a tremendous number of different effects. Somebody Mm -hmm. who's a stay-at-home parent may be just needing to get away (laughs) and get out of the house somebody who's a frontline worker may actually be experiencing the fact that they're expected to be doing okay now because the crisis I'm air quoting again, is over or past and yet this is when the crisis actually starts to calm down. That's often when you have the more emotional response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Parents, in particular, who have been working from home and trying to do schooling from home, have all kinds of different needs. So yes, we see there are so many different needs in different populations.
0: No, this is good stuff. So there will be many people who will listen to this podcast and will listen to this episode who may actually be experiencing Mm -hmm. some form of trauma, some mental issues themselves, or they may in the subsequent weeks or days or months Mm -hmm. after hearing this run into some issues that are correlated to the pandemic. So can you give some examples of things that people who are feeling anxiety, depression or isolation, can you give a few examples of things that they can actually do on their own?
1: Absolutely. One of the things I always suggest is to go back to the basics. Are you sleeping (laughs) and getting enough sleep? are you eating relatively healthy and i say relatively because it's perfectly okay to have treats right. in moderation right. are you moving are you getting some physical activity in and again a lot of times when we find people are struggling with anxiety depression isolation they're not doing any of those three you know, really? they're not sleeping they're not eating healthy and they're not getting they're not moving at all they're not taking walks they're not doing any kind of physical activity. The fourth thing I always then go to is some kind of social connection. Is there anybody at all that you can connect with socially? And ideally in person, safely, potentially still with masks, potentially outdoors. That human connection is a strong need in all of us, and the more you try to do it and push yourself out to do it, the easier it will get.
0: Hmm. That brings to mind a very, very interesting statistic that we're finding out about our students. It goes a little something like this. Students want to be on campus. They want to come to campus. They want to engage with the campus but they don't necessarily want to be in class, (laughs) right? Especially in a face-to-face class, right? But they want to be face-to-face on campus. So I think this connects to this point that you were making about the human-to-human connection. There's something powerful in that.
1: There's something very powerful, especially on a college campus. I mean, I think the, the people who go to college, part of what they are going for is that social connection, experiencing new things, meeting new people. And so, yes, they know they're going for their college education, Mm -hmm. but there's so much more. They can't wait to go see the green machine and the basketball teams and do different activities on campus. And that connection is critical. And we did see this year that even bringing some folks back to campus, a lot of them still reported feeling very isolated being in singles and not necessarily being able to study together. And so I think a lot of people are looking forward to that. At the same time, I would give the message that it's normal to have anxiety about that too. Right. right. So it's
0: both. This moves to some of the more difficult issues that we know are coming, right? There's Mm -hmm. always a cohort of people and, you know, I hate to put it out there, but it tends to be more male than female, who feel that it's a sign of weakness or it's a sign of shame to say, look, I am dealing with a mental issue, right? They'd rather break their leg. (laughs) Absolutely. Break their arm, right? Than to go in and say, I'm mentally hurting right now, things aren't well. So what would you say to those individuals?
1: So I would say to them that part of what we do is kind of shift the language. Instead of saying that it's a mental problem, I think if we can make it more normative that everybody deals with different levels of anxiety. And once you have the skills to manage it, just like If you were learning a new sport, just like if you're learning a new college subject, it's no different, Mm -hmm. okay? And if you're having trouble concentrating, if you're having trouble focusing, there might be a reason that we can help with. And it could be all you need is a few more skills, just like, again, learning how to shoot a layup. I'm very short, I'm never gonna be a great layup shooter, but I can learn the basic skills to be better. Understood. Same thing with mental health.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Same
1: thing. There are skills you can learn to just become better at managing your own
0: emotion. What other lifestyle tweaks do you know of that people can do in order to put them on a path to better well-being?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there are a lot of different skills that can be done. One of the things that I believe in pretty strongly is some gratitude practice. People sometimes laugh at me and say that's a little hokey. Right. But there is actually research data that shows if you write down three things that you're grateful for each day for two weeks, your mood improves.
0: That's really interesting.
1: And so I will often tell somebody who's a non-believer in that, give it a try. Do a science experiment. You yeah, know, what do you got to lose? What do you got to lose? You know, it takes, what, two minutes to write down a couple of things? hmm And they don't have to be big things. They can be things like, I'm grateful that I didn't run out of coffee this morning so that I could have my cup of coffee. So that's one thing. And that's, again, very easy to do. I do come back to the physical activity, kind of moving, taking a walk, being out in nature, and connecting in some way. And people have different ways of connecting. So getting off of the screens and doing it in person can have huge impacts on your mood, and help you manage some of that anxiety. This is
0: one, for me personally, when I get to a point where I'm experiencing higher levels of stress, I just got to get to a gym. Mm -hmm. And what I find is, A, I'm stronger, but B, I find that I feel so much better afterwards.
1: You know, your question about, too, decreasing stigma, your comment about stress, I love that, because... A lot of people feel it's fine to be stressed. In fact, in our American culture, it's almost a problem if you're not stressed sometimes. And I think if we could help people realize, okay, stress, yes, most people are stressed, but there are ways to help you manage that. Somehow that has less stigma than depression, anxiety, or trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's a way to get people in the door sometimes too.
0: Let me give you another one and and just get your feedback and then talk about maybe how we can apply it to our students, our faculty and staff. One of the things we had to do this year, what we made the decision to do, was to eliminate spring break. We Mm -hmm. took that break out because we literally shifted the calendar to start later in the spring because we were trying to avoid or give it a little more time for the peak occurrence of the virus to subside, right? And the goal was, if we can start a week late, two weeks later, than we would normally have started, we would be in a different point on the curve. Right. So that's why that decision was made. What I realize now, in hindsight, Mm -hmm. after talking to students after talking to Falcon, look, I have two college age sons mm-hmm. that are at it, you know, we're at a university and they struggled with this issue too is that the breaks matter. Yes. And taking some time away from the intensity of what we have to deal with on a day to day basis, especially now, is important. So for me, the way I see go- coming back in the fall, we should probably make sure our faculty don't give lengthy assignments that students are going to have to do Mm -hmm. over break and we should encourage our students to take that break absolutely because mentally you actually may need it you may need some time to decompress we should talk to our falcony and our staff and many others take the break time use at least a few days of that break time in order to rejuvenate and refresh yourself take that time away to employ some of the strategies that you just mentioned mm-hmm. earlier what what are your thoughts
1: i think that would be fabulous i mean again we really talk about the importance of wellness breaks right and we definitely saw the impact of not having a spring break mm-hmm. this year that it really was exhausting for students for faculty across the board right and I think part of what we have to teach people is how to take a break. And sometimes having it in the calendar definitely helps that, but we absolutely need some breaks. And even during the semester, potentially having a wellness week where all non-essential meetings are canceled, that's huge. Right. For even if it's giving people time to catch up and be able to then go take a walk or go do (laughs) one of their favorite activities.
0: No, I hear you. We actually did that as a leadership team. We took Fridays and said, especially for the mornings on Friday, but supposed to be for the whole day, no meetings. No meeting Mm -hmm. Fridays. Take that time to get caught up, to decompress, to deal with the issues. Yeah. Because we had people, they were grinding. I mean, the way our leadership team came together to help resolve Of COVID, you wouldn't believe the large number of meetings that had to happen, and the meetings about the meetings, right? Right. (laughs) And so, take Fridays. Well, what that turned into is that oh, okay, we'll do it. We're not meeting with everybody else on Friday, but can we meet with you, right? (laughs) He started meeting with me on Friday. You know. Anyway, I think the breaks are incredibly important. They are.
1: You know, we're talking a lot about skills to help manage typical depression, anxiety, even trauma or folks who haven't experienced those who need some skills to help others. I do wanna mention though that if you are having thoughts of hurting yourself, hurting someone else, that is a crisis and that is a critical time to be reaching out because again, we can't help you get past this feeling if we don't know. And again, there's really good skills and support that can be provided to help somebody who's feeling suicidal get past that feeling. And people who are feeling that way don't believe that at that time. And we will ask them, give us a chance. Mm -hmm. Give us a little time. But if they don't speak up, or if friends of theirs don't take it seriously when they do say, I might as well be dead, And that happens a lot on college campuses. That, okay, people may be having a couple of drinks with friends. and then it comes out, well, I wish I just wouldn't wake up in the morning. I'd, I'd be better off dead. And for a friend to speak up, you're saving that person's life because we do know how to help people, but we need those folks to come.
0: Oh, man, to us. you are given golden nuggets right now, so, Robin. I golden just wanted nuggets. to
1: make sure we hit this because, no, especially no, no, on college campuses, and it's not just the students, but faculty, staff, right. contractors, everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not uncommon to hear this in the workplace of things have just gotten so bad it's not even worth it okay well we need somebody to speak up and if somebody is actually sharing that they might be initially angry that you tell on them but if they're choosing to share that they're asking for help no, I get it. I know I just took us in a very serious No, direction. no, no.
0: I think that this is the kind of thing that we need to talk about, and it's the kind of thing that people need to hear, especially individuals who would be listening to this mm-hmm. podcast.
1: People Ch- also think, and then I'll, I'll... No, no, no. Go for uh, it. But people think that if they ask somebody if they're thinking about suicide, they plant the idea. And again, the research, the data shows over and over again that asking saves lives asking does not plant an idea and this is true for kids and teenagers too really it is so you're not going to give somebody the idea if they haven't already been thinking about it but if they have been thinking about it you're giving them permission to actually say oh yeah i have had these thoughts
0: Wow, another golden nugget. So Craig Sawchuk, a psychologist at the Mayo Clinic, says something that I want to get your reaction to. He says uncertainty, is the gasoline on the fire of stress. Do you agree with that statement? And how does it play into what we are actually seeing now and going to see in the aftermath of post-pandemic America?
1: I think that's a fabulous quote. I actually hadn't heard that until this was just shared with me, but I think it's an absolutely fabulous quote. When people are uncertain, when there is this question of what's going to happen, our responses are heightened mm-hmm. and our anxiety anxiety goes up. Right. And when our anxiety goes up unless we do something to bring it back down, that's when we act rashly, we make decisions that are not healthy, and uncertainty as that quote said fuels the fire. Right. So tolerating uncertainty is a skill and hmm. being able to sit with I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I'm willing to try x. Or I'm not sure what the outcome of this will be, but I'm willing to try why. That alone is a major skill. And if we can have our students leave Mason with that, that is amazing. But most people have a very difficult time tolerating uncertainty. They want to know what's the path, what's the plan, what's going to happen if I do X. And life is just not like that this last year and a half highlighted the uncertainty more than we've ever had man
0: are you kidding me
1: <laughs> but uh,
0: it, it's interesting because we had folk really knowledgeable people on our staff that would say look you have to tell people as far as possible in advance that we're going to do a b c and d it all makes sense the challenge is, oftentimes, more than once, when we did that, the ink wasn't dry on the <laughs> proclamation before the conditions changed, such that we had to make an additional statement. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. The conditions were changing so rapidly there for a period of time that, we're going to open, we're going to close. We're going to open, we're going to close. We're going to close, we're going to close. We're, we're going to exactly. close a little bit. We're going to open a little bit more, right? And I remember in a given day uh, when we were making the decision to return to campus and at what level we are going to return, I remember in a single day seeing information come across my desk where I said, okay, we're going to open. We said, Mm -hmm. okay, we're not going to open, and then we're going to open again and all within an eight-hour period, and these were major decisions for the campus, Right. the the information was literally flowing that rapidly. It's very, very difficult. What do you think about telling people or helping people to understand that the uncertainty is a likely outcome? of the situation in which we're currently in, and that you can expect things to change. I That's the only certainty is that change will come. Right,
1: and I think again, framing it in a positive way right. of we are all learning to be flexible and I think being as transparent in the communications. One thing I was impressed with a lot of Mason's communications this year was there was always the acknowledgement of this is the decision to the best of our knowledge right now. This could change. And owning I can tell that, you where that came from. Yes. <laughs> but owning <laughs> that is huge. Right. Because no, I get it. that gives more certainty in some ways that you're owning that, okay, things could change. And we're learning to be more flexible. I mean, I think about so many things post-pandemic that we will actually continue with, such as teletherapy. There was lots of resistance to teletherapy prior to the pandemic, and mm-hmm. then everybody jumped into it. You, you had know? to. You had to. Right. And now we are going to be able to reach more people because we will certainly have people coming back in person. But we're also going to be able to provide teletherapy. Right. We're not going to go backwards. And there's lots of examples of things that flexibility that people have learned across this time period, I think, is going to help us move forward.
0: Oh, that's really cool. So why does stress seem to peak at night for some people?
1: That's a great question.
0: Is so. it because the, the, you know, you're know you moving so fast during the day that when you get in bed at night, it finally slows down and you're able to stop and think about what's happening around you?
1: Absolutely. For so many of us, it's actually really hard to turn our brains off at night to fall asleep.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All day... You might be involved with caretaking, kids, parents, students, whoever that might be, or doing activities or working or, you know, you're distracted doing whatever you're doing all day. You're making sure that, you know, a family gets fed or you're making sure that you've gone grocery shopping. When you finally go into bed to fall asleep at night, it's often the very first quiet time that you're actually alone with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And the middle of the night, if you wake up and you're alone with your thoughts and you feel, again, very alone, it's very easy to get really caught up in those thoughts. And that's when the stress and the worry really magnify so that if you're able to fall back asleep in the morning, that same worry may not seem as bad as it was in the middle of the night. So again, there's lots of tricks to help people manage those worries at night and manage that nighttime. And so those are things, too, that hopefully we can publicize and give people some more skills so that if they are feeling that worry and can't sleep at night, they can manage that.
0: We're going to have to put that one in a toolbox.
1: There are some great apps called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, Mm -hmm. free apps, through the VA, they're wonderful because they walk you through some of those skills.
0: That's really cool. So as we wrap up here, how have we fared during this time from a mental health perspective as a campus, including your organization but beyond, and what can we do to do better?
1: Again, great questions. I think we have fared fairly well. I think everybody has done their best in a very difficult situation. I've been so impressed with some of the reach out that CAPS has done on campus. Mm -hmm. Our goal at our center has been really to stay connected both on campus with the organizations on campus as well as organizations in the community to make sure that we're able to reach as many people as possible. I think we all have a lot more to do to be better at reaching the people that we need to reach, but also to be more accessible. And part of that comes down to resources. We need more therapists. We need more skills toolboxes that can be disseminated in a way to many people at many different levels. We need to do better because where we started with this conversation, I think we are getting ready for a tsunami as people come back to campus. Okay.
0: Wow. (laughs) That is certainly... (laughs) It's a tall order. (laughs) Oh my God. I have to take that to heart and plan accordingly as we move forward. You know, this is, <laughs> I'm almost afraid to ask you another Uh-oh. question. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Yeah. Well, I, you know, what I will say here is that this has been an exciting conversation. This is really exciting to me. I only got to about a third of the things I wanted to ask you. So we may have to bring you back, oh. <laughs> especially once we get into the yeah. fall.
1: Anytime. So. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about this and to share some thoughts with everybody, hoping to normalize anxiety and depressive feelings and symptoms so that we can really get out there to get in front of it and help people.
0: Well, that's going to wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. I want to thank Robin Mellenbeck, clinical professor in Mason's College of Humanities and Social Sciences and director of Mason's Center for for psychological services for her leadership in this area. And if you are a healthcare or frontline worker and need someone to speak to as we navigate through the COVID-19 pandemic, reach out to the center at 703-215-1898 or on the web at psychclinic, that's P-S-Y-C-L-I-N-I-C, at gmu.edu. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying, until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.